This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm your host Dan Gunther and joining me as he does every time is the other host of Literary Treks, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and very eager to talk about Star Trek, Bruce Gibson. Hey. Bruce. What's up? How's it going today? You know, you, you said bushy tail, which reminds me when I was in high school, this girl used to call me squirrel. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember why, but it's funny because years later then we reconnected on Facebook and she's like, hey, squirrel. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot she called me that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, maybe next time I'll have to introduce you as my co-host squirrel. That would. <laughs> nah, let's leave that one behind. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump right into it. We've got an extra jam-packed episode for you today. Uh, we're talking with Kirsten Beyer later about her novel, Architects of Infinity. Uh, but before then, we've got some news that we want to get to. Uh, so first of all, oh, and I should also say we'll have someone else joining us for the, the feature as well, which might be a little bit of a fun surprise. So Kirsten Beyer and a mystery guest as well. Ooh. So. I'm excited. Has this fun. person ever been on Literary Treks before? You know, I think he may just have been. Ah, like more than once? or I, I'd say a number of times he's been on the show, yeah. <laughs> Probably more than I've been <laughs> on here. <laughs> well, before we get to that, uh, we do have some news items. First off, you may have noticed a few days ago there was an announcement of a new Star Trek The Original Series novel which came as a bit of a surprise given what's currently going on with pocket books and the lack of book announcements lately. And this is Star Trek, the original series mission to gamma six by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. Now, before you all get too excited, I have to sadly report that this was an April fool's gag. Uh, it's not an actual book coming out, but I have to admit myself for about 10 seconds or so, I was really excited. <laughs> Maybe not quite 10 seconds, but for just a little bit of time there, I was pretty excited about this one. Uh, did, you, did you see this one online on uh, April 1st there, Bruce? I did. And my first reaction was similar to yours. I was like, whoa, wait, what? A new novel? 
what uh, I, I didn't know of any other new novels coming out like okay this might be the first of many and then I started thinking about it and I was like wait a sec no 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 and th- wait it's April Fool's Day no yeah no and Dayton yeah this has <laughs> got to be a joke and then it's like wait what is this this mission to gamma six a wait and you know what this is from it's a toy from like the 70s mm-hmm. yep absolutely the amigo action figures which uh you guys might remember those action figures that you know kind of have a little bit of smooth features to them not really that lifelike with the fabric uniforms and stuff and this was a playset that was created for those, the Mission to Gamma 6 playset, which pe- features this big square-headed serpent mountain thing. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> right. And they can like which, swallow and grab you and all that stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it does feature on this cover, which was done by Trek FM's own Aaron Harvey. Uh, he was in on the joke and created the artwork for this. And it's really quite gorgeous. If you do look carefully at the three uh, crew members, Kirk, Spock, and Bones on the cover there, if you look really closely, especially at Bones, you'll you'll notice that they're definitely the Mego action figure versions of them. He's standing pretty oddly and uh, not really lifelike there, but really great artwork. And I have to say my favorite touch is the big kid's hand coming into play with the with the set there from the right. You know, I can only hope that this really does turn into a novel someday. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, Dayton and Kevin did get to do the gold key uh, version of the the Star Trek Waypoint comic. So, you know, they're no stranger to kind of the sillier side of Star Trek. I don't I don't know that they'd ever devote an entire novel in the pocketbooks line to something like that. But I mean, it'd be pretty cool. We've gotten some definitely off kilter star trek novels before i mean the case of the colonists corpse comes to mind so they do occasionally do some fun stuff and i don't know this would be a kind of cool thing to have yeah i also would like the playset. i'm sure they're hard <laughs> to find online and expensive and all that a collector's item but it would be kind of cool to have it yeah that would be pretty great uh we do have a couple other news items first is the inc- uh, the next up, I should say, is the Incredibles Star Trek USS Enterprise book uh, with 3D wood model and also the Enterprise D. Now, this is pretty cool. We learned a little about this. Uh, basically, Dayton said he was working on some projects and couldn't really say what they were. But it turns out this is one of them. They're kind of the laser cut wood models. Uh you might remember, at least I remember as a kid, they had the dinosaur bone models like that, that you could build. This is kind of like that, but you can build the Enterprise and the Enterprise D. And they come with full color books with facts and trivia about the starships. And those books are written by Dayton Ward, who of course is well known to listeners of the show, writer of many Star Trek novels. And uh, it sounds pretty cool. The books sound a little more substantial than I was expecting with this. So 32-page hardcover books packed with information on the Enterprise and the Enterprise D. Uh, The models are easy to assemble, laser-cut wood, and they build up to these really cool three-dimensional starships. Um, And they come with detailed instructions and coloring and crafting ideas. So these are set to be released on June 12th and price currently is listed at 16.99 each so these look really cool so maybe we should do a video show of us 
trying to assemble these things. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. <laughs> that could be both fun and embarrassing. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never done anything like that, quite like that. But, uh, yeah, let's do some wood modeling, 3D wood modeling of the USS Enterprise. That would be incredible build. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I agree. I These do look more complicated than any that I've ever done in the past. So uh, I could, yeah, we could be setting ourselves up for t- potential embarrassment. But uh, yeah, I'm on board. That sounds cool. <laughs> All right. Awesome. You know what I did uh, just recently? I read a book. And it was called The Star Trek Discovery Annual. Yes, I did too. And there was no uh, assembly required. No assembly required. Didn't come with any laser cut models, but that's okay. It's still, it was still a good read. <laughs> a good read, which we have a group on goodreads.com. Thank you very much. Very See, stealthy I, placement. <laughs> I'm just all over the board tonight. I love it. Well, this, uh, yeah, the Star Trek Discovery Annual number one. Uh, written by Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson with art by Angel Hernandez. And uh, yeah, this was a really interesting comic because we have gotten Star Trek Discovery comics. We had the the four issue Klingon miniseries, but never before have we gotten like, you know, the Starfleet side of things or the human side of, of stuff from Star Trek Discovery. So this was pretty cool to see that world represented in comic form here. What did you think of this issue? I really enjoyed this because now that discovery has finished its first season and I finished, you know, reading the two novels, which we've talked about here on the show, um, you know, we're getting the one comic line uh, featuring the Klingons, but this was a full condensed one story issue so it's like a double size issue and it's you know start middle and end to this and it focuses on Stamets and his early days of how he got into spores and the mycelium network and 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 all that and I really actually enjoyed it because it like really filled that void of discovery that I've been missing lately Mm -hmm. yeah that's exactly how I felt too I really love the characters we've gotten with Discovery, and especially Stamets. Uh, I really like his arc over the course of Discovery Season 1. And when we meet him in this comic, he's kind of back where we started, where we met him. Uh, even before that, his kind of snarky, sarcastic, uh, kind of jerk self. But still underneath it, there's the hints of the heart of gold and the the loving person that we know him to actually be. Uh, so it was really cool to get those characters and to hear Anthony Rapp's voice mm-hmm. <laughs> saying some of these lines was a real treat. He he has really become one of my favorite characters in Discovery. And this was a really fun story. I have to say I appreciated especially the backstory of him meeting Culber and how they kind of formed that relationship. And early on, we, we got kind of in the episode magic to make the sanest man go mad. We got Stamets telling a little bit of this backstory, but to actually see it and that sarcasm that Stamets has and how that interaction actually makes him like Culber, I thought was really funny 
I, I, I really enjoyed that whole interaction. I did. I think you're right. It really hits home the characters. Uh, I could hear the voices very well. It really, it flowed and sounded to me in my head just like an episode discovery. Like we got a, a somewhat little bonus episode. And, and seeing that scene of the two of them meeting each other, and even earlier we see uh, Dr. Justin Stahl, I think is his name, and Straw, yeah. that's it. And he uh, he's the guy that Stamets, in the third episode Discovery, when we first meet Stamets, Stamets is talking to him on his view screen, who was, and his, uh, who was, his buddy was on the USS Glenn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we get to see their relationship and how they knew each other and how he got involved in the spores, the two of them together and working on their experiments for the, the spore drive. So I, I loved all the backstory. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, the kind of it, to me, it makes you appreciate Stamets perspective a little more when you encounter him on discovery, he and captain Lorca are sniping back at at one another and, you know, you think of this guy, he's a Starfleet officer. Why is he so, you know, uptight about Starfleet and being on this ship and stuff? And you realize, oh, it's because, you know, he kind of, it wasn't really his idea to to have his work be co-opted by Starfleet. But we get kind of that progression and how he comes to make that choice to come aboard Discovery. And, uh, and then, of course, when Culber shows up. <laughs> <laughs> on discovery that's just that's cute i really like those two that was really sweet in a lot of ways it's kind of uh with stamets in this he's like david marcus on uh star trek to the wrath of khan as like you know i had the same yeah, thought <laughs> yeah, exactly absolutely. yeah it's the scientist that's working on something and what starfleet's getting involved we don't want starfleet here i don't want you know keep keep away and uh mm. so yeah that's how stamets is it's like i have no interest in starfleets i don't care if they're going to help me move forward with this i don't want to get involved this is our own private um project that we're working on i yeah i had the exact same thought you know the getting the military involved and it was also interesting that they were originally working on terraforming which mm. uh you know made me think of project genesis as well and all that stuff so that was cool. I have to say, I really like the art in this as well. A lot of panels, it's very simple. There's not a lot of, you know, craziness. But when we get close-ups on the face, faces, wow, do they ever look like the characters. I have to say, they got Culber's smile, his big toothy grin down perfectly. And uh, Stamets' kind of uh, spaced-out look that he has sometimes when he's you know, working on stuff or thinking they really have these characters down well. Yeah. And we also see, uh, and Dorian Starfleet officer, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just little touches like that, uh, throughout it's, uh, really enjoyable. So I definitely recommend anybody who likes Star Trek discovery, you know, pick this up at seven ninety nine. It's a little over 50 pages. And I mean, it can be read, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if you liked Discovery, you'll love this. It's, like you said, slightly larger than your average comic issue. So, you know, it's an annual issue. It's something a little more special than just a regular monthly comic. So I think this is a really good one for the collection. If you're starting your your Star Trek Discovery tie-in collection, this is a good one to go in that. Yeah, and it's an annual, which means we should get another one next year. At least we sounds we good. Better. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then how could how dare they call it an annual if that's not the case, right? Right. 
It's a promise. That's how I take it. It's a promise. Exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of great Star Trek stories, uh, great tie-ins written by Kirsten Beyer, what do you say we jump to the feature? Yeah, there's more of her. Yay. Let's do it. So, listeners, we have a special treat for you today. It's always a great episode if we get a chance to talk to one of the authors. And today we're talking to one of my favorite all-time authors, Kirsten Beyer, whose latest book, Star Trek Voyager, Architects of Infinity, came out last week. And we're going to talk about that today. So, Kirsten, how's it going? It's going really good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Excellent. Doing awesome. Yeah. I just have Wait, one question. Who's that? Who's that one guy talking? Wait. Oh, this is Matt. Matt, I I've just been hanging out in the corner on the cot with Dayton. Oh, yeah, Matt's back. I gotta say, awesome. it's really crowded on that cot with Dayton. Can we get another cot? Oh, please, yeah. Okay, <laughs> just saying. Um, tell Dayton to behave himself. Um, so uh, Architects of Infinity. Um, I I was expecting more Infinity Stones in it to tie into the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Oh, Matt, you don't know me at all. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's, oh, gosh, it, one, it's good to be back. So, guys, thanks for letting me crash the party. Excellent. Well, yeah, Matt, we know uh, it was kind of in your contract when you turned the show over to us that anytime we have Kirsten Beyer on the show, you have to come back. So, uh, contractual obligations fulfilled. Uh, yes. Glad to yes. Have you I'm here, and I'm really excited to to talk about this one with you because, um, I think that you really have um, you've taken the the Voyager crew in a, in a place that we weren't necessarily all expecting, and that is great um, because they've already on, been on this journey um, for books now, and to kind of chart yeah. them a new course has been really fascinating. And uh, spoiler alert, um, but can I just say um, kindly, I got to the mm-hmm. end. And all I could say out loud, and then I typed it to Dan and Bruce, was, damn you, Kirsten, in the kindest way possible, because I just want the next book right now, like, right now. Yeah. Yep. So, so here's the thing. When, these, when this book and the next one were contracted, they were contracted at the same time. And I hate to say how long ago that was. But we all know it was like a little more than two years ago. And what I did was I actually wrote the outlines for both at the same time. Oh, wow. So I know the whole story of both books. And in my original outlines, the ending of this book, the very end that, you're, that you were so upset about, was actually not in the first book. It was in the second book. Oh, wow. And um, in the working and reworking of this story, it, there was a point where I just sort of realized that, no, that actually is the end of this book. And so I, I do apologize, <laughs> but it's been part of the plan, like always, that this is just part of the story. So can I, can, can we assume then with all the, the contractual stuff that's been going on, that this book is still, mm-hmm. the next one is still under contract. So we will hopefully be getting that one sometime whenever you have the opportunity. Yeah, no, I have, I, I have every okay. intention of finishing Excellent. this story. It's not something that I, even if they wanted me to, like would ever feel good about turning over to anybody else. Um, it's, it's, yeah, this is a whole story that I need to, that I need to finish for sure. Exactly how I'm going to do that at this point, I honestly have no idea, but it, it is, it is definitely something that I feel strongly about doing. So, yeah. 
Excellent. Well, that's that's really great news, of course. And uh, To Lose the Earth, I believe, is the, yeah. the title of that one. Excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, right off the top, I should say, um, why don't we go ahead and say that this entire episode, we're going to spoil the heck out of this book. Uh, because I don't really want to restrain us in what we're talking about with regards to this story. So uh, warning to all the listeners out there, this will be a spoiler-filled uh, interview and, and review of Architects of Infinity. So you have been warned. <laughs> <laughs> Proceed with caution. Excellent. Well, first of all, a, a big aspect of this story, of course, is the storyline with uh, Nancy Conlon and Harry Kim. And Nancy is, of course gravely ill she she has this degenerative condition and she is also pregnant with harry kim's child at the start of the novel and in the last book we learned that she does not want to keep this child she wants to terminate the pregnancy and harry obviously is conflicted about this but ultimately supports her decision um but we learn, of course, in this novel that that's, that's very fraught. Harry Kim has some very definite feelings about that. And then there's an added complication that Dr. Sal, uh, who's the chief medical officer uh, of the, oh, which ship is the she? The Vesta. Right, the Vesta. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, she discovers that stem cells from the baby could save her life uh, and cure this condition. And so we have this kind of medical ethics situation developing here uh, and a right. number of issues come to play. And this is, I have to say, this is kind of a theme that I noticed in this book is the end, unintended consequences and everything kind of snowballs uh, from this. So yeah. if you want to talk just a little bit about that whole decision and that situation that uh, these characters find themselves in, and especially Dr. Sal, uh, when it comes to this uh, particular plot. <laughs> so I'd introduced this, this um, illness that Sal had fought a long time ago. And at the time, I wasn't 100% sure that this was going to be similar. But when I was thinking about the kinds of conditions that would be interesting to address, because they would contain all of the complications that you guys are talking about, um, that seemed like a great place to spring from. And then it was a new idea to tie that to the Creosian situation that I really wanted to explore in depth because that was an episode that while on the surface and as a TNG episode feels just like, you know, another day at the office, when you start to dig into it a little bit, it's kind of horrifying to imagine that any individual who is a Federation citizen could be forced even just by, you know, societal pressures to advocate their individuality for anybody else. Um, so that sort of all came together as I was planning this story um, and how it applied to Nancy became like just part of a much bigger story, right? Because it's not just about Nancy and her situation now, it's also about Gwen and her heritage and Sal and how she feels about the political situation on that planet. So um, as often happens when I'm planning these things, stories get bigger. So, but here's the thing about the Nancy and Harry part of it specifically that you guys might or might not find interesting. 
when I came to the end of Pocketful of Lies and I realized that Nancy was going to be pregnant and that we were going to deal with this going forward um, in terms of reconciling the pregnancy and the illness, I had no doubt in my mind that as a character, as an individual, Nancy would not want to have this child at this time. Like it didn't even um, occur to me that that she would make any other choice for a lot of reasons. Like personal beliefs aside, just given her situation, the illness and the relative newness of her relationship with Harry. I mean, I know they've been together for a while, but it still felt like way too soon to be making a leap like that for both of them. Um, that it was just clear to me what her position would be at the beginning. And then as I began plotting this book, at the outline stage, I felt like there were a lot of ways that the circumstances of this story might allow for me to explore the possibility of Nancy coming to a new understanding, right? Not necessarily just randomly changing her mind, but realizing through conversations with Harry and through discoveries on the planet and stuff like that, that there might be more possibilities than she had originally thought when she was first diagnosed and first found out that she was pregnant, which was a pretty bad day for her. Um, and the more I got into the manuscript, uh, the more I realized that that just wasn't happening. Like I couldn't make her change her mind. <laughs> it just wasn't happening. And um, because of the length of time it took when I was writing this book, there were, it wasn't like in the past where I would sit down for like six months straight and write every night and, you know, always be building on what I had done before. This book of necessity was written in fits and starts. So I would get through 10 or 15,000 words and then I would have to stop for maybe a month. And then I would get through another 10 or 15,000 words and then stop for two months. And that meant every time I went back to the story, I kept having to sort of find myself in it again and pick up where I was and keep moving forward. But it was really more challenging than anything, any writing process I've had before. All of which is to say that I ended up writing probably 20 or 30,000 words of Nancy Conlon that never made it into this book, which is a lot, um, because I kept trying to make my original plan work, but it wouldn't. What ultimately happened was that I ended up, after, after trying it lots of different ways, I found that the, the only way I could manage to make this work was the way that it actually happened in the book was by, in a sense, taking her agency away from her when it came to uh, the life of the child, taking that decision out of her hands. Um, but up until the end, it was sort of fair game in terms of whether or not when she woke up and realized what had happened, she would decide, no, I still don't want to be a part of this child's life, or I do. And I really waited until I got there and actually started writing that scene several times to figure out what really felt like the most organic uh, choice for her. And um, so it was interesting because it was a situation where what I planned to have happen is not at all what happened, but I was still able to get to the place I wanted to get to. I have a question about um, that because um, yeah. obviously this, you know, that kind of situation can be so charged. Um, yeah. And, I was really moved with the way that you dealt with it with Harry and Nancy's reaction after the fact when they're having their conversation. 
of her saying, right. you know, why didn't you say anything to me when you felt so strongly? And yeah. it really, you know, I found it to to be just a very moving conversation about, you know, the responsibility of the the man in this situation, you know, and Harry obviously wanting to be a good man in this situation um, and take responsibility for the child uh, and all of those things. And um, I just wanted to talk through, you know, that process of, of, of making that uh, really charged situation and, and kind of bringing into such a personal place for those two um, because uh, the way you did it left me comfortable where I wasn't sure if I would be comfortable because in the spectrum we're probably on different sides. Um, but I just loved the way you dealt with it with her and Harry there at the end and her kind of feeling a little bit hurt that he wouldn't share how he felt that this was such a desire for him that he, you know, like I I just, I really, I really found that um, so beautifully supportive of good manhood and good womanhood working together. Well, I mean, like my personal views aside, which to be absolutely clear is simply that it is every woman's right to decide what to do in that situation. Um, Meaning I don't want, the government or any other individual to make that choice for them. Whatever choice they come to needs to just be theirs, right? And, but that doesn't change the fact that Harry is a part of this equation. And for better and worse, Harry is also the character that we all know better. And it felt to me like at this point in his life, Harry would be a lot more open to the possibility of having a child and moving forward with that just based on where he is and also based on the fact that, you know, he's had the experience of watching Tom and Bellana struggle with this as well um, and seeing sort of the upsides and downsides of that choice, um, that, that this was something he would want to take on. But at the same time, I knew that he would never force that choice on Nancy. And a lot of what ended up working for me was the idea that she has a reaction in the moment when she first discovers it that is colored by so many things, largely the fact that she had been feeling for a long time before that moment that there was something terribly wrong with her and that she was going to have to sort of come to grips with that. But then she had a little bit of time to process. And it was only once the, the initial shock of everything had worn off and she was able to start thinking about it that there was a possibility when I came to the moment where they're finally discussing it, that Nancy could say, why didn't you tell me how strongly you felt about it? Given how strongly you do feel about it, maybe we can talk more about the choice before us, right? But then that's also complicated by the fact that now the baby actually is outside her body. So it's a very different choice than um, when the baby was inside her body. So in some ways, she, she the only decision she can make at that point is whether or not she wants to be a part of its life. So what I had to ask myself is in that situation faced with Harry, who is so open and willing to do whatever she wants, including take care of the baby without her, if she, if that's her choice. And also the reality of the pregnancy no longer being an idea. um, But, you know, there's a real living human being right in front of her. How would that inform the choice that she might make. And, you know, what felt right to me in that moment was that that would change her mind 
or open her mind at least to the possibility that this was something that they could do. Now, this is also bearing in mind that it's going to still be nine months or eight months now before this child actually is a child who can survive outside that, you know, incubation chamber. And, um, you know, there's a lot that could happen to affect Nancy's choice. But the, the place that I hoped I could get her to was one of having gone from being totally closed down because of her fear and her pain and her, you know, the weight of the situation she was under to at least opening up a little bit and seeing the possibility, right? That that was where I wanted to, to see if I could get her to. And I think I did, but, you know, people will argue back and forth. I mean, I'm sure that there will be some readers who will be like, that's a total betrayal of Nancy. She totally didn't want the child and therefore she should not want the child now. But, you know, my experience of being a human being and dealing with complicated situations is that it's an ongoing, evolving process. And I sort of wanted to honor that for her because the point of this story was never to make a political statement about whether or not women should have the right to do that. The point was just to follow Nancy specifically through this journey. Well, it seems right? really organic in the sense that where she gets to is she truly does not know how much time she has left. And right. so to make the most of every moment that you do have left you know, comes back to that Picard right. idea from generations, you know, because that moment mm -hmm. will never come again. And so to make right. that choice, um, you know, it seems organic almost that she would say, you know what, I don't know how long I have left. So I would like to try the idea of motherhood and maybe, maybe possibly even being with Harry um, permanently for the rest of my life. Yeah. Because I, yeah. you know, uh, this will be my only shot to get to try that. And, that. and to me, that makes complete sense when you think, yeah, I don't have much left. Right. And I think, you know, also removing the complication of why am I doing this? Am I only having this child to save my own life? Which was something I felt she would instinctively react negatively to. You know, that idea um, just felt like really, really challenging. And I think uh, part of what you've done in this novel, too, is to make these characters come alive and feel very real to the point where all of this is happening. All of these choices are kind of being made without her input because she's unconscious. And I found myself actively worried for her and like yeah. what she would think <laughs> and what would happen. And, yeah. and the decisions she makes, like you said, it, she's a, she's a real person with, with real thoughts and ideas. And, it makes sense that, you know, she would react to situations, uh, you know, not necessarily in a way that might be kind of plotted out from the beginning, but like you said, kind of discovering what her answer is at the end. Yeah, yeah. It was very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, even though the scene in the at the beginning with her in the trees is very brief, um, it was always meant to sort of be a new idea to her that something that she was discovering in that moment even as she felt she had made peace with the choice just specifically regarding the child and whether or not she would use itself to help possibly treat her illness um was that she was sort of opening up again to the reality that it's this is a bigger issue than her that it, that it's her and harry and you know, everybody who's in their lives, that all of these people look like individuals, but they're all one, you know, they're all part of something bigger. So 
Yeah, it almost made me wonder when I got to the end of the book. Of course, at the beginning, she decides she wants to terminate the pregnancy. But as soon as the embryo is removed, it is then mentioned that, you know, it's now it's it's an individual. It's protected by federation law and it's a baby. And what would have happened if by the end of the book, Nancy had decided I'm I still don't want the baby. What would have happened with that that individual? Uh, it's still, well, it, she would have had to just give custody fully to Harry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, she, you can't, there's no pregnancy to terminate at that point. So it's not about, well, we're going to, we can still abort this child. You can't do that at that point. So it would have been up to Harry to decide to keep the child there with him on the ship or to make arrangements to maybe, you know, send the child back to the Alpha Quadrant and let his parents or somebody else raise it for a while. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about the subject, about Nancy's pregnancy, but then she's not the only character that you explored when it comes to pregnancy. We had Gwen, right. where she right. had terminated earlier pregnancy in her life. Right. And now mm-hmm. she's in a situation where she has to decide about donating a blood sample, which is against her society's culture. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. tell us a right. bit more about that character. Well, so Gwen is somebody who's been around for a long time, but we've never really, apart from the fact that she's a really great pilot and she likes to sleep around, we hadn't really laid in, the, and she does funky things with her hair from time to time. She hadn't had a great deal of individual development. So knowing that I was going to go deeper into her culture in general, I had to start imagining what her life was like and what brought her to Starfleet and you know what her important relationships were uh, prior to that. And it made sense to me that she's somebody who doesn't seem to be much of a planner. Like, um, she, she feels like somebody who literally is flying by the seat of her pants most of the time. And given her age and her position in the fleet and stuff, that makes sense to me. This is a young woman who is still exploring and having the time of her life doing it. So, um, What it came down to was trying to figure out where that spark came from in her. And it was interesting to me that it would come not from just a sort of idealistic uh, vision of what Starfleet is or, you know, like I've always wanted to join Starfleet and, you know, go to the Academy and fly, but just more that only when she saw her world get incredibly small did she think, no, I'm going to need more than that. And it was also interesting to me to to imagine that choice between the mother and daughter and not just the daughter to see how the two of them would have dealt with that situation because in a way her mother didn't really give her much of a chance to say, wait a minute, let me think about this. Her mother sensed the, the fear and terror of, oh my God, what have I done? And probably also recognized that that choice was going to limit her daughter for the rest of her life and that maybe knowing her daughter as she did that wasn't going to end happily for her. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, it, that came to me in the creation of this story. That wasn't something that I had planned. Um, so it was sort of strange that, you know, it was supposed to all be about Nancy making that choice and it ended up being about Gwen making that choice. But, um, but also for, you know, because of the way I had constructed the existence of the metamorphic cells and the notion that in women's bodies they would only exist at certain times in their cycle and stuff, it sort of became something that had to be discussed, right? I really liked what that part of the story said about, you know, someone like Gwyn 
whose sexual agency is very important to her. And she, she is, you know, lives a certain lifestyle that she appreciates and enjoys. And then to have that kind of potentially the potential for that to be ripped away from her kind of echoing, you know, the society that she, you know, found herself in to begin with, that was a really interesting exploration and, uh, a really interesting mirror to Conlon uh, um, for certain questions of that. Yeah, and it also, like, it, it becomes an exploration of all the different ways in which women's choices can be restrained because of the fact that they can reproduce. You know, mm. if they're the only, you know, um, member of a species that is capable of carrying a child, then it puts different kinds of pressures and choices on them which is not to say that men don't participate fully in the life of their children and that they aren't a part of these choices. It's just that there are also parts of this experience that only women will, will have to wrestle with and will understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fun, actually, to sort of like go down that road and really try to flesh out and dig deeper into the Creosian history and mindset and like what would have... Um, how they would have developed through that process of, of this, because of this unique genetic anomaly um, that their empathy gives them. I thought that was, that was really interesting because there's a whole side of this that is um, something beneficial because there is a change in Gwen because of what happens. And of course, you know, bonding with um, uh, Nancy and Harry's, child where she has um a sense of peace and focus that she didn't have before so i thought it was interesting the way in which that whole thing came you know around where it's like um it could be used in a society for something bad um but it also has this wonderful impact on those that go through it in a way like this. And I just, I loved that, that whole idea of how, you know, things can be twisted to be bad, but they're, they're not necessarily in and of themselves always bad. Um, and I thought that was really nice that you did that. Yeah. And I really wanted to make the point, and I know there's a passage in there where I talk about the fact that for the empathic metamorphs who choose that life, even now, it's a very happy life, you know, and that the spouses who are bonded like that tend to live really great lives together and that then they tend to pass away close in time to one another. Um, I never wanted to frame it as a purely negative situation. It's a complicated Mm -hmm. situation, you know, but the thing that I loved both, um, you know, literally and then also kind of metaphorically about the choice that Gwen got to make was that she could choose to um, enter into a new relationship with this, you know, being that is currently in the process of being formed without sacrificing her identity, right? Because that's the part of it that, that's challenging in the whole perfect mate construct, that the one who becomes the perfect mate to the other has to give up who they are. And so I was really excited when I was able to find what I felt was a solution that would allow her to continue to be exactly who she is, but now her life is just bigger because it also includes this other person who she's bonded with. Which I think is 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 kind of this whole point of this novel, right? Like that that we're right. better together. Like this fleet, yeah. it's better if we all work as one. Uh, the same lesson right. that that um, um, uh, Harry kind of gets taught to him 
um, you know, by an underling, which is you, you guys need to know us. You need to respect us. You need yeah. to, you need to, um, uh, spend time with us, uh, and all those things yeah. like that. I, I really liked that all of the themes in this, um, this story really dovetail each other very well so that, um, we, we have a thematic structure that by the time you get to the end of the novel, you feel like you have been on a true journey with every part of the crew in different ways, but it's all been um, mirroring each other. And that's really, that's just good storytelling. Well, thank you. But that was also like one of the core ideas of the story before I even knew much about how it was going to develop was this notion that we could find something to explore that would allow different groups of people to come together to explore it than we're used to seeing. I mean, a lot of times in Star Trek on the series and in the books, it feels like there's 10 people who run the ship and nobody else really matters. Um, mm -hmm. we, we may have names and faces that we toss in when somebody's on an away mission or, you know, off duty for a reason or whatever, but that I wanted to take the opportunity to, um, to take some of these folks who have been, you know, just sort of names on the page that haven't had a ton of development beyond what their responsibilities are and really begin to get to know them as people. And to be honest, in my initial conception, I was going to do that a lot more. And what I ended up with, just because, you know, I only have hundred and something thousand words to do this, was having to focus on a few smaller groups um, that, uh, but originally there were probably three or four other constructs of characters that I wanted to give some time to that I just didn't get to. Yeah, I'm glad you said that so. because that's one thing that really appealed to me about the book was it was almost like a lower decks type of yeah. story and and how yeah. much I'm like two thirds of the way through the book and I'm thinking, wow, you know, it's not really focused that much on the main characters. And as much as I love those characters, I wasn't missing them because I was so invested into these other ones. That, well, that yeah. And, and if you've been following the series, which I can't imagine there are a ton of people picking this book up and this is their entry point into it. <laughs> um, but if there are, there's other stories, there are plenty of other stories that go incredibly deep with all of the main Voyager characters. Mm -hmm. And so part of sort of opening the universe up at this point is about, you know, um, really deepening uh, new faces so that they can begin to interact with our main characters in interesting and more informed ways. I mean, like going forward, there's no way Gwen isn't an important part of Harry and Nancy's life, assuming they live. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That was actually something that I, I found really interesting is because of that elegant solution to the metamorph problem, Gwyn kind of bonding with Harry and Nancy's daughter and experiencing this deep love for the child. Um, she's almost kind of a part of that family. Yeah. And I'm curious where you might see that relationship going from here. And it actually really reminded me of Kira with the O'Briens mm -hmm, on Deep Space mm -hmm, Nine. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of echoes of that there, which I thought was really fascinating. Well, okay. In some ways, it's a challenging question because we don't want to spoil a lot of what's coming. But, like, theoretically, if I were going to write these characters for another ten novels, let's say, um... I feel like there's no question that Glenn would be an important part of their lives, but not necessarily that she would be open with them about that for a long time. Because I, I sort of think 
it, in some ways what she did was a huge thing and she did it without getting anybody's permission, right? So I think there's a certain amount of, like I, I feel like there's a desire on her part to like never tell anybody and to maybe wait until the child is old enough for her to have a relationship with it to sort of like be like, hey, well, maybe I can babysit or maybe I can, you know, watch her for a while or I'll take her to the holodeck or whatever. Um, because these are stories, I can imagine that I would probably force the issue. Um, and I think what it will do, apart from creating an interesting dynamic between Harry and Gwen, who serve together on the bridge, is it will also create a very interesting dynamic between um, Gwen and Nancy. But what I love is that Nancy already has in her experience an example of a relationship and what that's supposed to look like with the character that we talk about here, who was her lady, um, the woman who Gwen's mother had allowed to bond with Gwen and who just sort of became like this favorite aunt who knew her really well and was always around. Like, I think, I think Gwen is imagining that, or like when she made that choice, she probably thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll just be somebody who's around and who's there if, if, if the kid really needs me, but surely I'll be able to step back. And then once she made the choice and feels the overwhelming emotions that come with that, that's going to be harder. But how that plays out is going to be completely determined by, you know, what everybody's going through right? Because there are times when it would surely be helpful to have somebody else like that in your life uh, who you know adores your baby as much as you do. And then in other times it could probably get weird, you know, if they feel a certain amount of ownership that, you know, you didn't ask for as the parent and, you know, you want to be the parent and maybe don't want anybody else's interference. So what it, what it becomes just for me as a storyteller is a situation that is rife with complications and that's just something that I love. So um, it's just something that I can play with as time goes on. You know, this novel, as we're talking through it even more, it's it's so much about relationships. And it's not as much as when we talk through a sci-fi novel and we're saying, like, oh, what, why did this character make this decision to go that way after the bad guy or do that or, or whatever? This right. is really about relationships. And and Echeb is one of those too. And I know in the mm -hmm. in the last novel we explored his character quite a bit, and we did in this one too. And yeah. so he has this close relationship with Finn Bryce, and yeah. uh, then we come to find out there are romantic feelings from both ends uh, on this. Right. And I don't mm -hmm. I don't recall Echeb being referred to as his sexuality is being gay or bisexual or anything previous to this. And he seems right. to not be surprised by this either, but he it's, it's interesting how he then has this physical problem. He, he, he has the desire. He wants to be with Bryce, but yet he's got this condition that he physically doesn't have. Can't, I don't know. Maybe right. they don't have Viagra in the 24th century. I, I don't know if that's what this is about. No, but <laughs> no, no, that's not what this is about. Okay. <laughs> but go on. No, you go on. I want you to tell me more about this. I'm very interested in it. So, okay. So the one thing that we have established about each in terms of his sexuality doesn't come from the canon. It comes from the books where in the Christie golden novels, when we saw each at school, right at the academy as soon as they returned to the alpha quadrant he had a brief relationship with the girl who was at the academy with him and or he was attracted to her or whatever and then she ended up like punching him out i can't remember what the circumstances were exactly but um it didn't end well and 
so there was a part of me that was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm assuming that means Ichab is straight, but also Ichab was like, what, 18 at that point, like maybe 17, like, um, and, and had not yet had really any opportunity to explore relationships. So when, when Ichab returned to the fleet, I didn't necessarily bring him back with any eye toward this relationship in particular. What happened was I started writing him in the scenes with Bryce in Pocket Full of Lies, and suddenly I was in love with these two guys. And <laughs> it just felt absolutely right to me that this could be the first real meaningful romantic relationship in each other's life. So once I had put them together in Pocket Full of Lies, for me, it was a foregone conclusion that these two guys were going to get together. So then there's the fact that, obviously, with all of these relationships, you like to find complications. And... Um, I can't ever think of Ichab without thinking about how monumentally screwed he was by his parents and that whatever genetic changes they made to him to make him a weapon could have had unintended consequences. So in some ways, this feels like a thing that kind of should be easy to overcome when emotionally and intellectually he is so in the right place and his body just won't respond. I mean, I felt like when Cambridge was talking to him about learned behavior, that in some ways it becomes like a mental exercise to um, find the responses that are um, in some senses genetically denied to him. But I also, in researching this book, started to learn a lot about just genetics in general and um, epigenetics. So how the experiences that we have in life can actually change our genes. And um, so it felt like something that wasn't going to be a barrier forever, but was an interesting place to start with these two, that um, this is a relationship that they both very much want, but it's hard for sci-fi reasons and not just, you know, sort of normal life character reasons. Because this is science fiction, we're going to always look for ways to sort of like talk about issues in ways that aren't just, um, you know, he, I like him, he doesn't like me, I called him, he didn't call me back, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, so that was a lot of fun to find. But yeah, I've, I've, from the first time I put these two together in a scene, I was like, oh, they're adorable. <laughs> so, so yeah, I've been looking forward to developing that further. I really liked the progression of that relationship too. It felt very natural, like just mm -hmm. the interactions that those two had together. Mm -hmm. It just, everything seemed to naturally lead one into the other. And I have to say, I really also appreciated each scene with the doctor where, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're very open as, as you should be with your doctor about, yeah. you know, issues and that sort of thing. And ultimately his advice, or ultimately, I think it was Cambridge's advice to be, um, honest and open with Bryce as well about right. what's going on, which right. is, you know, something that I think is very important in every relationship, of course, right. is honest communication, which, of course, follows back into what we were talking about before with uh, Harry and Nancy as well. So it's kind of this interesting theme that weaves its way through the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it never in a million years, I mean, look, there's like the low hanging fruit plot complication of I have this issue, maybe I shouldn't talk about it, and then we can build conflict around it. But that's not the kind of conflict I'm interested in exploring. It's mm -hmm. much more the real conflict about, so, so this situation is now upon me. How do we deal with this together? 
right? Mm-hmm. And I don't really have any idea yet how Finn is going to respond because I haven't written that yet. But based on who I know him to be as a character, I don't think he's going to see it as a reason to walk away as much as simply an obstacle to be overcome. One of the things that, uh, just kind of talking about this too, because of characters going in new directions, um, mm-hmm. you also challenged Tom and Bellana with mm-hmm. their family and the choices that they make. Um, right. And for all, I, I was really thinking that you might make them make a huge decision to, to, to change their life in the sense of like, that they might move somewhere completely different, you know, like, yeah. do they move to back to Earth? Do they move to a stationary place like a Deep Space Nine or something, you know, like, right. but I loved the idea that you had them have that challenge to their lifestyle to make sure that it's true because their lives are completely different now than they were 10 years ago. And totally. I thought that that was such a great thing because couples you know if for anybody who's been married for more than a few years you know that you change you both do and where your life goes together has to continually kind of get redefined every few years as you both change and you make sure that you're both in the right place and like you're if you've got a family you've got to make those choices too and so I loved that that was a part of this because it was so unexpected, but it was really beautiful, especially where it came down to. I just I just adored that part of the story. Yeah, and that's something that I couldn't have known until I had a child of my own, that, that um, finding that balance between what you think is best for your child and then also recognizing that everything you do, as long as you're entering into it in the right way with your heart open and with a desire to constantly do right by your child, there aren't actually any wrong choices, right? Like from Moral's perspective, I just want to be home feels like a natural choice for somebody who's, what is she, four now or five? Um, But as the parent, it's your right and responsibility to know when that kind of of a feeling in a child needs to be honored and when that kind of a feeling is simply um, um, a sign to you that you haven't done enough yet to educate your child about how big the universe is. And that's one of the cool things about telling stories in Star Trek and on ships and things like this is to just really imagine the practical realities for people who are out there and choose to have families, right? Right. It wasn't an issue in the early series. It's not till we get to Next Generation and suddenly we're on a ship that's got like, what, 1,500 people on it and a bunch of families. Then now we have to have schools and we have to have science fairs and we have to have, you know, like, it's a it's a different way of imagining life in space than I think Star Trek originally had conceived of. But it's also very worthwhile exploring, you know. And other book series have also handled this in different ways. I mean, I think a lot about the Destiny series and the character of Kadohara, I think is her name, who has a husband and I think three children who live on a planet and are really, really happy. And she obviously spends as much time as she can with them, but her life is on that ship. And the both partners seem to be totally okay with that, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not that it's not painful to be away from the children, especially when there are, you know, the Borg are coming and are about to kill everybody. But um, but watching characters balance those kinds of choices is endlessly fascinating to me. So um, 
So yeah, that was actually another situation where I knew that this was going to be morale's challenge and finding different ways to sort of make the universe a little bigger for her, both with Fife talking about how moving around on a planet isn't actually all that different from moving around on a starship, um, except starships let you go farther in different places than planets do. Um, and also Bolana sort of like reminding Tom, it's okay. Just because she's not happy right this minute doesn't mean that there's only one way to make her happy. Like there's lots of choices before us and we need to explore all of them. And one of the best ways to do that is by being true to ourselves as well. Because if they decide to end their lives as Starfleet officers for the sake of their children, that needs to be something that they come to that is as right for them as it is for yeah. the child, not just for the child, right? Uh, it also made me want to see Daddy Fife. I'm just saying. The guy seems like a natural. <laughs> I, I would love to see like him end up with somebody completely unexpected on the ship and then start having babies. I just think that would be hilarious and awesome. Um it was, well, you know, it was great. It was in writing that scene. Suddenly, I was like, "Oh, Five has siblings. Yeah, Five has yeah. younger brothers and sisters that we've never known about." And I didn't know that until I wrote that scene. But I was like, "Oh no, he's got a family—not kids of his own yet—but he's got brothers and sisters that are very important to him." Well, I like to the you. You scared me in this book because when Bolana has to go down the planet in the shuttlecraft and she needs a pilot, and it ends up having to be Tom. And I'm like, oh no, the two parents are going into a dangerous situation. Are we going to lose Tom and Balana when they're going down and they sacrifice themselves and save Devi Patel down on the planet? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, those are those sacrifices of being a Starfleet officer and having a family is like, you you may be leaving your child at home and, and without parents because they and, yeah. and you could tell they they both didn't want to do this together because if one dies the other one could still be around but there was really no choice yeah, yeah well and there are there have been situations in the past where the other versions of that made sense like there's a situation in eternal tide where they need a really good pilot to pilot that shuttlecraft into the anomaly and you know do the firing from the other side this can't be an autopilot situation and um, Chakotay wanted Gwen at the helm of Voyager because she had the most experience navigating the fractures in space so far. So she was the best choice for that. And he could have very easily made the choice to send Tom in to do the other thing. Um, but he, he made the decision not to, that he was going to go in instead because Tom and Bellana, you know, had a child. And in some ways, like, that's a very complicated decision. Because as a captain, you're like, well, he should put the, the well-being of the mission first. So Tom is the best pilot, so Tom should go. But it's also a very human thing and something that honors the complications of the fact that Tom has been a part of Chakotay's life for many, many years. And Chakotay absolutely adores Bolana and absolutely adores the child that I could see him saying to himself, I'm going to take that risk. I'm not going to even ask them to do that. And even, you know, Tom would have been well within his rights to stand up and go, screw it, I'm going. But Chicote is the captain, so he gets to make that call, right? In this situation, Tom and Bellana really were the only two people who could go do that mission. Bellana was the only person who was going to make that, trans that crazy transport thing work, and she needed her best pilot with her. So, yeah, it's hard, but this is not, this is not unprecedented in our lives. Men and women in the military have families. And sometimes men and women in the military are married and have families, and they don't always get to 
to choose where they deploy and what situations they are put into. That's part of the deal when they sign up. So, um, you know, you don't want to have to think about Maral and Michael suddenly being without parents, but that's also not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, that's part of the constantly recognizing that what we do out here is dangerous and it should come with risks, you know? Well, speaking of the mission in question, uh, we talked a little bit about the kind of Lower Decks. I, I, I promised myself I'd get through this without mentioning the name Lower Decks, but it's going to come <laughs> up <laughs> because that's the go-to, you right? Yeah. But our, our kind of window into that uh, is mostly Lieutenant Patel, uh, mm-hmm. who's the science officer on Voyager and feels like she's been living in the shadow of the senior officers, most notably Seven of Nine, who's, right. you know, not even in Starfleet and, and all of this. Yeah. Um, and she feels she has to do something big to kind of escape that shadow and make herself noticed. Yeah. And I really enjoyed this character because she was a bit of an enigma because, it, you know, I could totally see where she was coming from. But at times you just wanted to shake her by the shoulders and yeah. say, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. I mean, we didn't get to see Chakotay and, you know, Janeway and... Milana and stuff when they were like green ensigns and young lieutenants, right? So we don't know how they face that particular challenge, which was why it was cool to be able to have somebody like Patel who you could give that to and show that to. She is very much in the process of learning how to be a great officer. And this is an extreme situation that we put her in, but um, more than just the final choice she made, the exciting part for me was exploring her interactions as she's trying to be a leader with these three other officers who have allowed her to assume that position in their group for the purposes of this mission, but who are really kind of her peers. And so the she has to constantly be worthy of their respect. And when she makes bad choices, they can call her out in a way a junior officer can't call out a senior officer, right? So that's what was super fun about putting the four of them together and then sort of putting them through hell um, was letting all four of them have different reactions to the situation that they found themselves in. And also the fear of being in that situation without somebody like Janeway or Chakotay with them. Right. I mean, they're kind of on their own and just have to work it out. I liked, I, I mean, I liked that a lot because it also, again, you know, kind of going full circle uh, to where we were with ah, full circle. Um, yeah, I know you did that. I too. did that to I myself. <laughs> yeah, um, but with <laughs> how you know she has a, a really important thing to to talk with Harry about, and and it it also made me you know think of we're so used to spending so much time with uh, our legendary characters. I mean, you know, all right. the characters from the shows that we watch they're they're the legends. And mm-hmm. everybody else wants to be the legends. Well, the legends mm-hmm. have to be replaced someday. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the struggle that it would be to be on a ship full of legends, um, especially the Voyager legends, because they're closer than a lot of crews get because of what they went through. And so I really like that you dealt with that kind of in a way that felt very organic to what somebody might experience. And they're not, you know, the Voyager legends aren't doing it on purpose. 
at all. No, no. You know, but they can't help the right. fact that they bonded yes. the way they did over those seven yeah. years. So I just I, I thought that that was something that was really neat to bring to the forefront, and it gives them a nice challenge then to then make sure that they are being cognizant of these other crew members and making sure that they are teaching them correctly to replace them one day because you never know when you might be replaced. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it's fun because it allows me to then in the future have characters in, re- in new relationships, right? We're used to seeing Chakotay and Janeway. We're not used to seeing Chakotay and Patel. But now we know her well enough that if we, if we craft a mission where that's a dynamic, we have a lot more to explore with that, right? Um, then there's also the fact that one of the things that always bothered me, and I think a lot of people about the early days of the Voyager series, was how quickly the um, challenges amongst the various mixed crews were sort of put to bed, right? It seemed like the tension between the Maquis and the Starfleet officers should have been a source of conflict for a lot longer than it was. But pretty quickly, most of the main Maquis got cool jobs. And those who didn't seem to be content to run around the lower decks whenever we needed them. Um, and, and it just sort of like all evaporated. But as much as when Voyager was briefly in the Alpha Quadrant uh, at the beginning of the book series, and there was this weird tension between those who had been there for the Dominion War and the crew of Voyager who had missed it, um, this feels like another real source of, you know, development and conflict that it's not that there's a glass ceiling. It's not that there are all these people who we don't want to have above us, but we all want the opportunities to make the most out of the experiences we're having. And, you know, if you're just, if you're, if your job consists largely of waiting for other people to do interesting things, um, I can see how that would be tiresome, you know? Like we mentioned earlier, this is kind of something that, I think you've done a really good job of of really showing in Voyager here, but it's also something that's been, you know, something that's going on through Star Trek for many years. I mean, could you imagine being an ensign on the Enterprise A, you know, during Star <laughs> Trek V? There's three captains on the senior staff and the right. rest are com- – like, it's just, you know, it gets a little bit uh, – I'm sorry, and ridiculous. you are? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, Exactly. And and I really like the pushback. You know, I like that Gwyn gets up in Harry's face about it. And I have to say, I also like that Harry Kim came back with, are you kidding me? I was an ensign <laughs> right? for seven years. Exactly. <laughs> that was that was perfect. Talk to me seven years from now, honey. Yeah. And you know yeah. how long it took to get these stripes? <laughs> yeah. And that's it's funny, too, because this, that whole, the genesis of that conflict actually started with Harry and Nancy, Right. And Harry sort of chafing against them. Well, yeah, now I'm a lieutenant, but I've still got, you know, Janeway, Chakotay, Tom, all these people ahead of me in line. And how am I going to make my mark? And he has managed to sort of find ways to break out of that. And Chakotay has finally acknowledged in his case that, you know, yeah, you want to be a commander? Okay, I'm going to let you have the ship more often. I'm going to teach you how Mm. to do that. So, yeah, I, I have to say that one of the most fascinating things about the story was this... Indistinguishable from magic planet that we go to. I mean, it's uh, fascinating. Um, and so, I just wanted you to talk about the um, thought process between this creation because I I was just fascinated 
by this place and and what it was and what it is and the mystery of it. I felt like you had, and this is where at the very beginning when I was talking about you've moved us forward, you know, you've created a really interesting mystery for them to figure out and it's more than one book, but it had it. It's it's not part of something we've been, you know, you know, setting up before. This is all new, and like, where did you come up with all this stuff? Because part of it felt like, um, uh, well, you had the black liquid, and I was like, uh, is somebody mm-hmm. going to become venom? Um, uh, because <laughs> no, and yeah, no, but, yeah. <laughs> I wondered if the black slime monster was going to get Tasha Yar. Oh yes, yes, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was kind of unfortunate. Um, but, okay, so where did this come from? There's two pieces to it. First of all, there was the fact that I knew I needed a planet that had a mystery on it. So I wanted there to be a planet that, that had a deep, multi-layered mystery for us to sort of get to the bottom of. Something that, you know, this isn't a situation where we're going to go to end a planet and we're going to meet some aliens and they're going to tell us their story. The way that the aliens tell us their story is um, the most excruciatingly difficult way possible because they have, this thing has been left and we have to determine, um, you know, how it got there and what its purpose is and how it came to be. Great. An alien Rubik's Cube. It's like an alien (laughs) Rubik's Cube, yes. So, So the thing I started the story with in my head was the planet and the biodomes that this would be a world where um, there were all of these little pockets of life to be explored on an otherwise dead planet and where that could possibly have come from. And I I feel like I found fairly quickly the notion that this was a science experiment, somebody else's science experiment, and um, that this was really a place where other races had come to learn all they could about something they didn't understand, um, which is, of course, that Edromaya substance and Edromaya race and whatever. So I had that. And then the other key image that all of this sprang from was the image of the bridge of stars between the two galaxies. That was an astronomical phenomenon of which I was unaware. And I can't remember exactly how I stumbled upon it, but the minute I saw it, I was like, oh, holy cow, there's a story there. So um, it's featured here briefly, uh, just in terms of Gwen observing it and sort of spinning the myth around it of the two galaxies that uh, couldn't bear to be separated. Um, but that is a core element of uh, the bigger story that we're telling as well. Interesting. Well, I really loved the position that it put our crew in because... Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we see Starfleet and they're kind of masters of of all that they see and that kind of thing. And I mean, in the original series, we get godlike beings that flummox them and we get Q and stuff. But here it really feels like they just have no idea what this is all about. And they're, there's something so totally over their heads. And yeah. also, and, and it feeds back into that theme that keeps coming up of unintended consequences and what they end up doing to this biosphere and the effect that they have on this alien experiment i thought really it's it's like by the end we have the this immense alien race that has set up this thing that we don't even 
understand and it's like we're no more than ants that got into it somehow and they're like ah shoot well right. we got to trash this now and start over kind of thing yeah 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 that was fun i mean you know coming up with new alien species and their points of view is challenging because so often the aliens in trek are just humans with interesting foreheads that you know have problems mm-hmm. that very closely resemble our own and um, I really, this time around, went looking for a bigger idea, um, an alien race whose concerns were completely different from ours and what that might mean. And I also really did fall in love with the idea that we weren't the first people to try to figure it out, mm-hmm. you know. So we get to see the results of, you know, a dozen or two dozen uh, other species trying to grapple with this thing and what they made of it. Um, and now it remains to be seen what we make of it. It really, uh, to me, it also kind of brought, you know, the, these crews from far in the future closer to our time where we're kind of bumbling around and not realizing what our long-term effects of our actions are. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of these Starfleet crews, let's all beam down and play around in this lake. And mm-hmm. now we've doomed this, this star system. It was just, it, it felt very familiar somehow. Yeah. <laughs> That it could be something that dumb as not mm-hmm. recognizing that the water is pure for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of taking for granted that things that look like stuff that's familiar to us actually is familiar to us, you know? Right. Um, because given our level of development and technology in Star Trek, it is hard to find things that they wouldn't automatically know what to do with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it you, yeah, it had to be something that was right in front of them that would be completely easy to overlook, largely for the reasons that, you know, Chakotay's um, idea here is that everybody needs a break. Everybody needs to spend some time just exploring new stuff and having fun and relaxing and whatever. And, um, you know, the, the sort of cautionary tale there is you probably need to do a little more homework before you just send, you know, several hundred people down to a to a planet and let them roam free. Or maybe just create a Delta Quadrant Risa because, you know, mm-hmm. that's the reason it exists, right? You know, you're not going to screw anything there up. Um, right, exactly. I, well, the, the thing that I was really struck by, though, too, was that, and, and I think this was something that was kind of hinted at throughout the book, is that in some ways there's been this loss of awe and wonder for them. Yeah. And yeah. so this reminds them that there's a lot about the galaxy that they still don't know. There's a lot about existence they still don't know. And, you know, um, I love kind of the way that Chakotay kind of waxes eloquent a little bit about that idea of, you know, like, I, the, that's why I can still believe in in the faith that I believe in. And, you know, you get the idea of how, you know, the Bajorans can believe in the prophets and, like, because... When you are up against something like this, you realize, oh, well, yeah, I just don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, a lot of what I really wanted to do here was to very simply reaffirm the most basic mission of Starfleet um, and to get back to that. We, we have um, a tendency to reach for conflicts um, that you know, sort of involve either talking our way out or fighting our way out. And neither one of those uh, options is available 
in this case. This is a situation where they have to learn and understand and knowledge and science their way out. Um, and there's definitely more of that to come as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, now at this point, we, we alluded to it at the very top of the interview, but we need to talk about that ending. Because, uh, <laughs> and I've just got it in the notes as that ending, though, because, mm-hmm. wow, um, we, we get an epilogue and we get kind of a, a mass of that, that black substance approaching and everyone kind of blacks out mm-hmm. and then they come to... And they discover that uh, the USS Galen has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, like, as a book that was just kind of wrapping up and winding down. (laughs) You thought you were fine. You thought you were done. You lulled me into a false sense of security. Yeah. Sorry about that. (laughs) And then my jaw hit the floor. That was, uh, (laughs) wow. So I know you can't answer this question directly, but what's what's happening next? What's going on? Oh, my God. Yeah, well... (laughs) Clearly, um, the, uh, the first part of the next challenge is about figuring out if what they think happened is what really happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's going to be, I think it's pretty easy to imagine that when you have uh, 11 minutes of time that were lost for everybody, that uh, reviewing those sensor logs, um, you know, is going to be a huge priority because, nobody's going to want to accept that that's what really happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's definitely where we start, uh, the next story. Um, and I guess all I can say beyond that is rest assured, I have a plan and I knew exactly what I was doing when I did that. And, um, you know, there are, there are readers who have already sort of chimed in, to say that that was a cheap um, <laughs> sort of choice to get people to buy the next book. Um, I think once the next book is actually in existence and people understand the story, I don't think people will ever feel that way about that choice again. But um, but I understand the frustration now. I mean, I do. I get it. Um, but I just also knew it was the right thing to do with this story. Um, and it's it's one of the reasons why I'm incredibly frustrated that I can't say six months from now, guys, you're all going to be fine. Just relax. Um, mm-hmm. I can't say that. Uh, but eventually it'll be fine. Relax. It's <laughs> what I can say for now. Yeah, we have a good reads group. And uh, one of our members of the group actually posted in there and wanted us to ask you, how how could you end the epilogue the way you did? when this book isn't coming out for a long time. Yeah. Then, but, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think that was a complaint, but uh, he also said, and this is Jay in our group, and he says he hasn't seen a cliffhanger this big since the best of both worlds when he was only three or, f- and, and that was only three or four months he had to wait. But you know yeah. what? My thing <laughs> is, if it's good, it's worth the wait. Yeah. I hope people will feel that way. I really do. And, you know, again, I would never have done this if I didn't know exactly where I was going from here and that ultimately it was going to be incredibly satisfying Um, because that's just not how I tell stories. Um, And, you know, the the fact that people are going to have to wait a little longer than they are comfortable with, yeah, I feel badly about that, but 
we live in a world that is brimming with all kinds of stories and all kinds of formats. And there is plenty out there to keep you excited and entertained and busy <laughs> while, you know, the next story is completed. So um, I get the frustration, but I think, you know, once the initial shock of it wears off, people will sort of calm down and, you know, we'll get the rest of it when we get it. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, you're right. I mean, there's other things out there, but for Matt Rushing, your books are the only books he reads. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm just, I just love, I, I'm just picturing, uh, you know, um, uh, Kirsten just being like, are you not entertained? Um, because I was, and I, I'm giving you, and I know we're all going to be giving you the uh, Citizen Kane slow clap once the next book comes out, because we're going to be like, yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah, she knew what she was doing. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, honestly, I would never have had the courage to do that if I didn't know exactly what I was doing. <laughs> right. Well, you know, like which I've... actually puts you ahead of best of both worlds, apparently. So. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Good point. Actually, in my understanding is it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so Jay and our Goodreads group also wanted to ask about uh, January Lavoie's reading of the audiobook and was just wondering if you had the opportunity to, to listen to that and what you think of the uh, pocket bringing back audiobooks. Um, I have not had a chance to listen to it, um, but I'm super excited that it exists. Um, it's something that, I mean, audiobooks have increasingly become a huge part of the market, and it's something that I think Pocket Books has missed out on by not jumping on board that a lot sooner. So I know my book isn't the only recent one that got that treatment. So um, so there's that. I, and I also personally don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. When I have time to listen to things, I'm usually listening to music or maybe podcasts from time to time. Um, mm. So it's a form of entertainment that I'm not as familiar with. Um, I will say that, like, in my secret heart of hearts, I would love nothing more than to actually hear these books with a narrator and the original voices um, of the characters. But, like, from a practical standpoint and a monetary standpoint, that's probably like an impossible dream. So like, but if something like that existed, I would buy that and be listening to it in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. But as it is, I'm thrilled that pocket is finally embracing this market and that they're doing our, you know, cause they're, I, I imagine they'll be doing pretty much all the books we'll have these going forward, which I think is great. Well, I just want to kind of wrap up the discussion of the novel um, by gushing a little bit. Uh, <laughs> if I feel free. Um, I I kind of I used to have Children of the Storm at the top of my pocketbook Star Trek novels, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not sure if this one beats it out, but it's really giving it a run for its money uh, at the moment. Having just finished it yesterday, I'm. Stuff to sit with it a little while, but yeah. I loved this novel. I think you have told an incredible story, and I can't wait to see uh, see what you have in store for us with To Lose the Earth. Yeah, thank you. It's funny because you were actually the second person to say that. The second person whose favorite book oh. so far was Children of the Storm and was like, and now I think this might be it. That's interesting. And that's surprising oh, cool. to me. I mean, I don't it takes me a while to figure out how I feel about the books once they're done. And children has always had a really special place in my heart. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, there's definitely um, things here. This was, this was, this was a hard one 
Um, and it was something very new for me. And so um, I'm glad that people are responding as positively as they are. That makes me really happy. Well, uh, you, of course, have another role uh, in the Star Trek universe. And I totally understand you can't really talk a lot about Star Trek Discovery, the specifics of that sort of and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I do want to say, um, and I posted this on Facebook as well after finishing this novel, uh, the, the novel was very excellent, but the acknowledgments at the end, I have to say, is probably one of the most touching things I've read in a long time. And, you know, that the idea that you're filling, fulfilling the dream of writing for a Star Trek series, uh, it was really touching to hear you talk about your experiences with the people surrounding that show and your fellow writers. And I just want to say congratulations on a stellar first season. And uh, I wish you, wish you guys all the best going forward. Mm, thank you. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, there was, there was no way to properly acknowledge all of the people who have contributed to this process without, um, you know, acknowledging the time when this book was created and all of the other things that were happening in my life while it was being created. And, you know, there was a, there was a part of me that was super excited to do both of these things at the same time, because I knew that in terms of the show, it was going to be an incredibly collaborative process and a place where my voice would certainly be heard, but would not be the only voice or the most important voice shaping story. Um, so to know that I was going to get to play like that during the day and then come home at night and have a universe that was still completely my own felt like the best of all possible worlds because um, I could keep exercising all of those different kinds of muscles. Um, the reality of it was it was more exhausting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but um, that's okay. You know, these are. Um, these are incredibly wonderful problems to have. And I am so blessed and so lucky that this is my life. Um, it's also funny because I tend to think of acknowledgements as something I want to rush through because um, they're, they're for the people who, you know, are named in them. These are the people that, that really contributed to making this particular story possible. And when I sat down to, to do the acknowledgements for this one, I was like, there are too many people. You know, if I just started to list the names, it would mean nothing. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time for me to just tell that story. So I'm glad you noticed that. That's, yeah, that was, um, that was really, really special for me. Yeah. You know, when I read that, I was thinking, it, you're basically living your dream. And I just wonder, yeah. you know, are there times that you just have to pinch yourself and say, oh my gosh, I really <laughs> am writing Star Trek books and involved in the Star Trek series? Yeah. Every day. Every day. The shiny has not worn off <laughs> at all. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, more specifically as well, your role on Star Trek Discovery in the writer's room is as kind of the media tie-in guru is uh, how David Mack described you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I want to learn a little bit about that process. And, and we did uh, review the Star Trek Discovery annual comic at the top of the show. Yeah. That you co-wrote with Mike Johnson. What did you say? Spoil me. Tell me what you said. We loved yes. it. Okay. It was great. We felt, okay. <laughs> we okay. felt like I, I was saying that, you know, now that Discovery, the first season is over, we're in this drought. And I just felt like we got like another 
discovery episode because it just yeah. and we both were mentioning mm-hmm. the characters are right on point you know we could just hear the voices and we learned backstories and things that were hinted at within the series so it was a lot of yeah. fun yeah. yeah yeah so the whole media tie-in coordinator thing didn't really i mean it, it kind of happened by accident so we were in a situation where like the first issue at hand were the novels that were going to be done and because I have spent 10 years as a Star Trek novelist and we were hoping that we were going to be able to do the series books in such a way that they could actually be integrated um, with the existing series because we've never really done in the past when novels were developed at the same time as series was on the air, the two things were kept completely separate. And for that, the novels always suffer because they just can't help but be so far behind where everything else is. So we thought it would be a great opportunity to try to bring those two worlds closer together. And because I live in both, I was an obvious person to sort of facilitate that. Um, And when I took that on, I was like, are you kidding me? Of course I want to help, you know, Dayton and Dave Mack and, you know, James Swallow and everybody else um, make these books as awesome as we possibly can. It felt like a very natural extension of just the fact that I am in the room and I know day to day exactly what's happening with all the stories. So that seemed like it would be totally fine and, you know, whatever extra work that's easy to do. Um, And then there were comics and then there were games. And suddenly it became, um, you know, a lot more responsibility than I imagined from the very beginning or any of us imagined. But I was so lucky to meet people like, Sarah Gatos, who's the editor at IDW, uh, who has done all of our comics, and Mike Johnson, who is an amazing writer, an amazing track writer, um, to sort of like hold my hand and teach me how this form works. Um, And where I was able to contribute, not only with understanding where the story was at any given time and finding neat corners where we could expand story that I knew the show wasn't going to have time to do, you know, and then also a resource in terms of crafting story. These guys were just incredible at taking that and then turning it into comics. Um, they're, they blow me away. And I have been thrilled to get to explore that with them. Um, and then, you know, the there are other pieces of this that are sort of coming down the road uh, that I can't really go into yet. But, um, but yeah, the, it's been... <sighs> I mean, icing on the cake isn't really the right way to say it, but just something that I didn't anticipate was going to be a part of this, and I'm so excited has become a part of this because um, it lets me expand my um, abilities as a storyteller and also has let me learn um, just various other forms of art, and that's super cool. You know what, Kirsten? We we talked about you living the dream. I'll let you know that I have a dream too, and that dream is that you talk to Sarah about doing a Voyager comic that takes place during the time frame of your Voyager novels. I would love to see that. Mm. That's just my dream. Wow. Okay. Okay. I can't live that. I can do that. I can do that. Okay. Good. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know who's going to write it, but, <laughs> but I, can do, <laughs> well, I can do that. You don't have time? Mm. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> Um, I do. I did have one question uh, for you. You know, obviously, this is 
been a new process for you. Uh, and I just kind of wondered, what was the thing that um, you learned, uh, was the biggest lesson you learned in transitioning from, you know, obviously the world of novels to the world of television? Well, it, there really hasn't been one lesson. There have been hundreds of lessons. Um, you know, the simplest way to explain it is that story for different, the various forms of prose and story for the screen is created just very differently. They're just incredibly different processes. And um, for me, the challenge at the beginning was to kind of open myself up to the way story gets created in a sort of like, not by committee, but in a group with multiple voices um, contributing all at the same time and figuring out how to sort of like weigh my ability to contribute meaningfully um, against, you know, the sort of natural desire of every story to be like, no, it should be this. No, it should be this, you know. Um, so initially it just required me being very patient with myself and um, accepting that I didn't know how to do this and I needed to learn how to do it. Um, and that was hard, and it, and it actually affected my prose uh, for a fairly significant period of time in the early days. Um, I've mentioned this in other interviews. I really did feel like for a while my writing brain was broken um, because it was trying to incorporate all of these new things. And while it was doing that, it couldn't really work the same way it had before. Um, it was a similar experience, to be honest with you, right after my daughter was born. The first book I wrote after she was born was Children of the Storm. And there was an extended period before I started writing that book where I actually wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it because I really had a hard time composing like coherent emails, let alone entire like scenes and, you know, dial. It just, it felt like I had to relearn how to do it. And this was a similar process. I had to relearn how to, um, to write across the board. The good news is I got through it, but it was a super challenging process, especially for like the first, I would say six months. That's, I, yeah, that I can't even imagine. Um, because yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about like with the, uh, the process of writing a screenplay, what you do in a screenplay, uh, dialogue with the characters and stuff, the, the way that you could describe what's happening in the book or going on in somebody's head, so much different than it, you know, it is on television yeah. and having to learn that process, I can imagine yeah. being uh, very difficult. And then, of course, like you're saying, you're trying to transition back and forth between writing a book and, you know, all that is just crazy. So um, I, I, that is really, in, I mean, I'm glad that you feel like that um, you've got a little bit better handle on that, but uh, just really neat to kind of hear the differences between the two. Cause I, you know, just as a lay person, I guess you could call it, I don't, we don't really think about that kind of stuff. Well, I guess, I guess you probably can't say too much, but we also, we, we do know that you've got, um, a a new book coming sometime soon, ish, maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, when you say soon, when yeah, when way. I say soon, I mean when <laughs> Kirsten's damn good and ready. Um, when she's done writing the Voyager comic, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, right. I, I imagine if I put out a Voyager comic before I put this book out, people would figure out where I live and come find oh, me. Oh man. Um. 
Your yeah. name would be synonymous yeah. with George R. R. Martin. Yes, pretty yeah. much on fan hit yeah. lists. Um, but um, <laughs> what what do you have coming up? Uh, you guys have started season two, working on season mm-hmm. two for Discovery, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. I, t- I take it when you're hopefully finding some time to write some Voyager. Um, is there anything else that you have going on in your ridiculously busy life? Um, yeah, my life is. Um... I don't even know how to explain it. It, it, it <laughs> I don't know how to explain that I get, to you. I get tired just thinking about it. And so I don't honestly let myself think too far ahead. It's literally about what is in front of me today. How much can I accomplish? And then I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to hit it again. Um, you know, so for now, it's really a matter of all of my responsibilities to the show, which encompass obviously the show itself. And then, all of the extra licensed stuff that that we we work on connected to that. Um, we have, let's see, the annuals just came out. There's another four book comic series coming out um, for mm-hmm. Discovery season one. That's the succession um, stories that I know have been announced um, that Mike and I are almost finished writing. Um, the artwork is in process on three and the script is done on four, I think. Um, and then, yeah, and then I have to find time to, uh, to finish to lose the earth. Um, and that's really like a high enough mountain to climb that I'm not even letting myself imagine what comes after that, you know? Well, you just, you just need to watch the end of The Sound of Music and just remember that you can climb every mountain (laughs) and forge every stream and follow every rainbow until you find your dream. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be totally fine. It's gonna be I'm fine. Gonna find a way to do this. And it'll be fine. And and just think of your favorite things, and then things won't be so bad. Oh my god. Uh, we're we're joys tonight. Um, uh huh. I'm 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 not sure what has happened. Here, um, but, I'm not either. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're just we're just uh, loving on Kirsten tonight. But no. Um, is there? Um, I I I know. Um, with all the time. Do you get a chance to, to pop over to the one place that you have kind of interacted with fans um, much at all these days with the, the Trek BBS? I do. I do go over there from time to time and just sort of catch up on what people are saying. Um, I have not had time to uh, do any posting. It's again, it's never from lack of desire to interact with people. It's more a matter of, believe it or not, you want me spending my time doing the things I'm doing rather than doing that. It's the same thing with being on social media and tweeting and all that stuff. There are a lot of people who I really admire who get to spend a lot of time interacting with people that way. And I wish that I could, but if I spend my time that way, I won't get to spend it doing the other things and the other things will suffer. So, um, so yes, I do pop over and check out what people have to say. Um, and I love that people are still talking about these stories and, and, um, and have great questions and stuff. It's just not something that I can let myself dig into at the moment, sadly. Well, totally understandable with everything you have on your plate. But uh, we do really appreciate you taking the time to sit and talk with us. Uh, It's it's a real special treat to be able to talk to you, um, and especially knowing how uh, full your time is. So um, thank you so much. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I mean, ever since we started having these conversations, they have always been one of the highlights of any new book coming out. So... There's no way I was going to miss this. And of course, we'll do it again when To Lose the Earth comes out. 
Well, yes. th- this has been a great conversation, and uh, I say we go ahead and start recording the show now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got news for you, buddy. <laughs> but I, I, um, I do want to say too that you know one of the things that I love here is is that it, you you keep surprising us and i was doing uh, math in my head and, and i think that you've done nine voyager books now mm-hmm, in a row that, yeah. yeah um the the fact that none of those have ever been below average <laughs> is amazing <laughs> <you>. run. um <laughs> and in fact not only are they above average but I mean, I would say that they're between above average and excellent. And and, and for uh-huh. any writer to, to, to stay at that level um, and continue to create stories um, like this in Voyager, let's not forget you're writing in <laughs> yeah. Voyager and you made us care. So I, I just I, I think that's that's amazing. And, and I appreciate you, your dedication. Um, and, and I think I, I speak for everyone here and everyone listening when we say, Thank you for continuing the stories, even though you've been so busy with Discovery um, and and being just as passionate about it as you always have been, um, because I know you're exhausted and tired and all of those things, but the fact that you still love and care about these Voyager stories as much as the fans of your books do means the world to us. And um, I, I mean, we can't we'll give you all the time you need because we know you're going to create a great story for us. Um, so anybody who's complaining out there, just shut up and let her write a book. Um, and we'll enjoy it when it comes out. But I did, I just wanted to say that because I mean, I, you know, I know how busy you have been. And like you said, this has been a whole new process and I mean, a complete life change in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, these stories have been worth it for for so many of us, and it's one of my favorite things in my Trek fandom. And so, Aww. just we wanted to say, and we appreciate that. So, thank you for putting your heart and soul into it because we can feel it on every single page. Well, thank you. And you know, the thing that I am never ever going to forget is that this is where it all started for me. Right? The fact that I get to do what I'm doing now is because I spent ten years before that. Um, you know working in this universe and crafting these stories and trying to figure out, you know, every day what's next for Star Trek. And um, it's super exciting that this new universe is sort of opening up at this time in my life because I feel like it all has happened kind of strangely perfectly. Like the show came along when I was absolutely ready to do, to, to make that transition, to make that step. But I would never have been there had it not been for the time invested in these books. And that's why, like, in my perfect world, I would get to keep writing them forever, you know. We will just see what that does, you know, to my, to my health and my, <laughs> my, my mental well-being as we go along. Um, but there is always a part of my heart that's going to be here uh, with these stories because um, they came first and they were my first love, you know, and that's never going to change. Voyager is where the heart is. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciated you having on, on having you on the show. Oh. And uh, yeah, like Matt said, you know, to lose the earth, we'll get it when we get it. And uh, it's, yeah, nobody should be complaining because, and again, like Matt said, we know it'll be great when it comes. Oh, so. Thank you. I, I will do my best to live up to that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Kirsten. <laughs> no worries. 
So this was the first time I have been on Literary Treks talking to Kirsten Beyer. And I've always looked forward to it. I met her briefly at Star Trek Las Vegas, and we did talk literary treks and some other things. But it was so great to finally have a chance to actually talk about her book with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are, I mean, always just a great time. And Kirsten's always such a fun author to talk to. I find that she always has really great insights into kind of her process and putting together this book and especially with her work on Star Trek Discovery. I mean, how cool is that to be able to talk to one of the staff writers who's currently working on the show? I mean, it was a bit of a special treat, I have to say. Yeah. What an odd situation where you're writing a Voyager novel at the same time that you're working on Discovery. And I know that I don't think she was like working on Discovery and then at lunch goes into the break room and is working on the Voyager <laughs> novel. But, you know, just that those two projects go on simultaneously through uh you know her working on the different on different episodes and the novel it's just that's a lot i can't imagine (laughs) yeah no kidding well it's been fun talking about writing voyager novels on your lunch break today but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network so here's a quick look at some of the other shows that you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm previously on trek.fm the 602 club I, I kind of label this like Kryptonian curse um, that this oligarchy has taken over from the voice of Rao and there is no more freedom on Krypton. There is no more free will. Everything is completely predestined from the second that you're conceived. And when I say conceived, I don't mean you got jiggy with it. Oh, with no. Girl. No, we don't no, do that no. anymore. Uh-oh. No, no, no. Mm. We just put our finger... <laughs> on a button and it takes a little blood sample and then creates a child of you two together and then tells you what its entire life's going to be like. Earl Grey. The the special effects uh, at one point, uh, they used these lasers. It wasn't uh, CGI. Back then, they actually had real lasers spinning around me as I'm sitting in the chair in the computer. Uh-huh. And the top of my head started to burn. <gasps> Get hot. Oh, <laughs> the a little bit of smoke came up, and so they had to. They, we had to cut the time uh, of the takes. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> wow! The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is going to be one of the greatest comedic stars of this century. She is going to be amazing, and I love her. She's hilarious. But Tilly has become solely comedic relief in this episode and Tilly is not just comedic relief she is smart Tilly is a smart person she knows her job she is going to be one of the greatest captains in Starfleet I believe that literary treks why don't we uh kind of wrap up with our final thoughts on last full measure and uh, maybe give it a rating. So, well, Brandy, wait, 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 wait. There's um, one thing we haven't talked uh-oh. about. Exactly. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Brandy. Trip is alive! He's alive! Yes. <laughs> He's alive! I loved that so You're right. much. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Totally forgot about that. How yeah, no, the whole. That? I'm so sorry. <laughs> the well, there's whole a reason, reason for. Mm-hmm. The B, yeah. So, what's interesting is, 
when I first read this novel, I'd always heard it was the one that's revealed that Trip is alive. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find any of those podcasts wherever you got this podcast. Hmm, that's really interesting, Dan. You know, if you're an Apple user, I think you should be sure to hit the subscribe button in the Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or even the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And, you know, leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to get those. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered where you can find us on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. And you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, and those are all available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It can require a great deal of money to, to produce and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Once again, you'll find all of those details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So this was a fabulous show, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And you can do that in many ways. And the best place to join us in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L, the word Babel, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that on the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Just choose the show, Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And you can also find us, of course, on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. And of course, as you well know, and as we have mentioned earlier in the episode, you can find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. And there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers, Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan. Thank you all very much for your support of the Trek FM network and specifically for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Now, Bruce, when you're not exploring weird places on a planet and trying to figure out what exactly this Seven of Nineonium is, where can we find you? Well, you can find me in other weird places like on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast, which you can find on SoundCloud, Spreaker, you know, Stitcher, all those things I've mentioned about earlier that you can find literary treks on. And of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not sacrificing your life to send us data, and that data, of course, would be a Star Trek novel, where can people find you? Well, you can find me transmitting that data in short bursts of 140 characters or whatever the limit is on Twitter now at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I have a channel then in, on which I mostly talk about Star Trek. 
You can find me on facebook.com slash Productions. Instagram uh, at Kurtrats47. You can find me using Semaphore and Smoke Signals and Carrier Pigeon. And there's just so many ways to get in contact with me. Dang, I had no idea, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Note to the audience, I don't actually know Semaphore, but uh, it sounds cool. It does. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time. Live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.